Okay. So, um, Parker, we were talking about uh, Keyshawn and I before you called, and we were talking about something that um, actually is an issue for all the students uh, to uh, operate with, and we'll get around to that in a moment. But I would like to talk to you about uh, how to set ourselves up for the right kind of investigation that um, normally what happens is, is that many different meditation styles or teachers or whatever will give the, uh, the student a task or a job to do of some kind of description or another. And then the students try to do that task with varying degrees of success. But one of the problems is, is that uh, they, uh, are missing a skill that should be developed right away from the beginning. And yet, as you already know, the Western mind likes to be uh, advanced. No one wants to be a beginner. Everyone wants to be uh, in advanced technique. And so we often, uh, you could go so far as to use the word slough over that there are some aspects of the practice and we just slough, slough through them on the way to do, uh, doing the actual practice that the meditation teacher or uh, system calls for. And that very basic skill that we're talking about is the one skill that the Buddha harped on the most. And yet it seems to have gotten missing is gone missing in Western practice. And Keyshawn just mentioned something that points out why that's true. And that is, um, uh, Keyshawn was saying um, that it actually has back to do with the Christianity in our culture, with the idea that things are already determined and predestined and that uh, everything is going to be done for you. All you have to do is get on the, uh, the train and it will take you to the destination, hmm. which is a way of saying, well, that's true, but you still got to get on the train. You still have to put in some effort. And this is the part where things go south is because we tend to think that there is no effort to meditation, where in fact there is uh, one's right effort. And the Buddha is very specific about that. And that is, is that we must have uh, a mind that has only wholesome thoughts and that one's right effort is to investigate and see what thoughts are unwholesome and to make them wholesome. This is the very first job that we have to do. And you can see that's true in all kinds of different ways and places when we begin to understand the teachings of the Buddha, that even the Mahasi method agrees with this in the sense that it's an active meditation. It is not a passive meditation. It's active. You've got to do something. So um, when uh, the students hear that they're to watch the breath, they think that that's kind of a passive watching the breath. But if we just watch the breath passively, that means that the mind is not really very much attached to it. 
We don't actually grasp our object. Yeah, and where you talk about that, seizing. It will, want, it will wander away. The mind will flitter away very easily because we're not really, uh, we can use the word in English language, paying attention. Mm -hmm. One's right effort is that payment. We have to pay attention. We have to pay it. We have to put some effort into it. This is the point. And that right effort is, is the right effort to remove unwholesome thoughts and put wholesome thoughts in. This is a key ingredient. And the reason why almost all meditation systems fail is because they're missing this one point. An example of that is um, I've, I've talked to some Vedriana friends and uh, they talk about the noting very much, uh, or actually they talk about awareness or uh, watching, uh, but it winds up being very, very much like the Mahasi method of noting. And that uh, uh, in the Mahasi system, they have the, the concept of, uh, that's been referred to in Western literature as the dark night of the soul where the student goes through fear, misery, disgust, despair, uh, a, a longing to get out. But if you think about it, we should have started that way. That's where we start. The reason we sit down to meditation in the first place is because we can see fear. We can see um, misery. We can see disgust. Or we would have never started. So in that regard, uh, our view of that is very weak. So if that student begins to start the noting without having taken the right effort to clean the mind out, then part of what he's going to be noting is not the things that he should be noting. He's going to be noting the things that are there. But in fact, this is how it's uh, uh, taught. Uh, about when people ask what to note, the answer is, is to note what is there. But the Buddha would say, no, if you note something that's there that shouldn't be there, then you have to take the right effort to remove it. So it's not just a matter of noting. And if we continue to note and continue to note and see dukkha, and then we note it more and see it more, then that means that we're actually worse off than we were before we ever started meditating because now we're, we're in a whole lot more dukkha than we were before because we couldn't see it before. Isn't that amazing? This is where the dark night of the soul comes from is that people will get themselves into um, a whole lot of dukkha because they're noting it. They see it. There it is. And that the teachings of the Buddha is exactly opposite of that. He says that we have to remove the hindrances first. That that's the very, very first thing that we do. But we can see how valuable that is. Because this is what helps us come out of our delusional system. That so long as we're willing to have unwholesome thoughts, part of the unwholesome thoughts are going to be mixed with delusion. And so one of the things that many meditators in the West will do is they're trying to, to prove something to themselves. 
they have heard all of this stuff about Buddhism, about rebirth, reincarnation, and magical powers flying through the air with the greatest of ease and doing it without a trapeze. And yet, this is not what the practice of the Buddha is all about. In fact, you could go so far as to say that the real teachings of the Buddha is to be happy without having to do any of that stuff. And that obviously doing that kind of stuff is so rare that the only things that you ever find in uh, while looking for it is charlatans who are pretending that they can do it when in fact they can't. But you will find almost no evidence, or actually you will find no evidence, and uh, absolute lack of evidence is in fact a kind of evidence. Even though the Christians scream at the top of their lungs that that's not true, when they'll go around saying that lack of evidence, or let us say, um, is not uh, lack of evidence is not evidence of absence, and yet our entire legal system is built upon that. You cannot just uh, let us say the prosecutor just cannot haul somebody into court and and uh, tell the judge this guy's guilty. And the judge says, how do you know he's guilty? Because I know he's guilty. Well, what evidence do you have? Well, we don't have any evidence, but I take it on, just judge, take it on faith, this guy is guilty. Right? (laughs) Judge is not going to do that. No, judges, uh, and in real courts, and also you could go so far as to say that in a way, science is a courtroom. Science is in the courtroom in the sense that uh, who are the judges are all of the other scientists. This is why we have peer-reviewed papers and what like that. That if you cannot repeat something over and over and over again, then there's either something wrong with the method or there's something wrong with the way that you're thinking. But if you can repeat something over and over and over again, only then can you take it as a fact. And in fact, you could say that over and over and over. Each time that you do it over again is a building of confidence. And confidence is exactly the opposite of faith. Even though the Pali word sada, which is actually the same as the Sanskrit word of shraddha, is translated into English as faith. Mm. And it's got nothing to do with faith. It's got to do with doing something correctly and getting the right results over and over and over again so that we build up confidence. Once that confidence comes up to a very, very high standard, then it becomes a um, scientific theory because it's got huge amounts of evidence behind it. And yet, uh, in our normal language, a theory is nothing but a belief or even a faith. That we, we, in fact, uh, are, as humans, fond of manufacturing theories without any evidence at all. And yet we're unsatisfied with that. If we're going to hold a belief then we want to have evidence. We want still, I still have you though. Yeah, we. 
I think we lost him. Give it a second, maybe. Yeah. concentrated that they can have past life experiences and they constantly get disappointed over and over and over again in fact I was uh, just talking to, to Keyshawn about oh no Oh boy. Book records or is it kept in uh, the we, the we lost we back. lost you there for a second or two. You we lost you there. Where are your memories kept? Are they kept inside the brain? Are they kept in the Ashok records? Are they Having some difficulties. Yeah. I have lost my internet. Oh, there we go. I, I can hear you again now. Oh, you oh, we see you back yeah. again. Yeah, you cut out a few times. Maybe two, three minutes, I think. Yeah, I'm having a little trouble getting the... Well, the internet's back again now. It looked like it had cut off. So anyway, yeah, uh, we were uh, harping on the question of where are memories stored? Could you give a little preface to that one? I think we lost you before that. Yes. Where are your memories stored? Are your memories stored in the brain? Are they stored in the Akashic records? Does God do your memory for you? Uh, is there some giant common machine in the sky? Or where are your memories stored? Um, in your brain. It, yeah. In your brain. I think I've heard some stuff where... Um, it's less they're stored, quote unquote, more they're reproduced over and over. Um, but I don't know if that's what you're getting at. Uh, oh, you're harping on the word stored. Okay. So let's not word, use a word when you say repeated over and over again, then where are they repeated? Are they repeated in the same brain that, uh, that, re that did it the first time? Um, yes, same brain in that sense. Yeah, yeah, yes. Okay. All right. More or less the same brain. Yeah. So when you die and that brain rots, then who's going to, where's those memories going to go? Are they then transferred to the common machine in the sky or does God pick up your memories after you die or 
uh, how are those memories transmitted if there is some sort of transmission or does in fact those memories die with the brain? So, so what is the reasoning that people use to believe that, you know, you can get those memories back and, and experience the past life? What is the reasoning that they use? about where that memory is stored. I don't know, other than some charlatan said he could do it. <laughs> it's like feeding off this fear of death, right? Like, people want that, because they don't want to exactly. have their memories gone. We really, oh. really, really want to go on and on and on, because we have a self-preservation instinct that is designed to keep a, an individual organism alive. So people come and, and sell us that, we'll buy it. Right, and so uh, the primary mechanism of communication with that, uh, from that self-preservation instinct, it communicates through feeling, through body chemistry. And the feelings that it generates is the feeling of fear. So sometimes even the thoughts of death uh, bring on uh, fears or uh, bad feelings. That when we think of someone that we loved who's died, we begin to think in terms of bad feelings. And so death and loss, in fact, anything that you lose, everything dies. It's not just you that's going to die, but everything that you owned is going to die, much of it, most of it, before you die. For instance, both of you, all three of us, are wearing headphones. Those headphones are not going to last. All three sets of headphones are going to be dead long before all any of us are dead. Everything dies. Everything passes away. And this is something that is a primary teaching of the Buddha. This is what Anicca is all about. Anything that arises will die, will pass away. And yet... That goes against this self-preservation instinct that we have. That the self-preservation instinct is actually our, uh, if we can say it this way, it's our middle finger in the air at the universe. Because the universe is conspiring and is working very hard, diligently, step by step, with the intention of killing you. And that's actually, uh, that, that's actually how um, uh, the Bhikkhu, I listened to a Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talk translated by Santi Caro, and one of his interpretations of the Adam and Eve, that way that they tell that story, is another way to look at it is, is kind of like that they sort of disrespected God, and that went against the nature, went against nature and started to have like the good and the evil the liking and the disliking. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, yeah. you're, you're bringing back Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's uh, perspective on uh, the story of Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yes, that going against God's nature, well, God, if you can think of it like this, then, God made everything. He made it all, which means he must have liked it all, including <laughs> tsunamis, whirlwinds, uh, house fires. I mean, he made the whole nine yards. It's quite entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
and that when humans don't like what God did, then in fact they're going against God. And so if we get into a judgmental mind about I like this, I don't like that, I like this, I don't like that, then that means that we're going against God almost constantly. If you want to think of it in that frame of reference. Another frame of reference would be that um, if you live in paradise where everything is absolutely perfect, everything's great. And I do. I know all about paradise. I chose this one intentionally. I went scouting for paradise. It took me about five years to find the right paradise. So I know what paradises are. And I also know that any paradise can be destroyed with a thought. All you have to do to destroy that paradise is by not liking something in that paradise. And now the paradise is not perfect anymore. Yep. And if I continue to like and not like and like and not like, what I'm doing is I'm going around paradise, thinking, finding things that don't belong in the paradise and throw it out. So this tree has got a yellow leaf on it. And another leaf on that tree has got a bug bite on it. I mean, the bugs have been eating that leaf for days now. I don't want a tree in my paradise that has leaves turn yellow and have bugs eating them. I want perfect trees, so I'm going to rip that tree up. If I go around ripping up all the trees who have leaves, uh, leaves turning yellow and brown, I'm not going to have very many trees left, huh? This is the story then of Adam and Eve is, is that they destroyed their own paradise. It didn't take God throwing them out of it. They destroyed it with their judgment. This is what we mean by eating of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil is something that man does when they don't like what God does. And so we have to have God's alternate, uh, Satan, and say, oh, well, the devil made me do it. Well, who made the devil? God must have thought that the devil had a good reason, a good value, something there. And so this is a way that we begin to understand that actually we need to stop having these unwholesome thoughts that, in fact, that whole judgment, that whole story of Adam and Eve is, is um, the, the, the key to the Buddha is in that story of Adam and Eve. I mean, the whole show is right there. We have to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of our judgments. We have to make, uh, if, if we say something is bad, then we're going to have to deal with the fact that that, now, that thing now is bad. So, if we can go back to the very beginning, the very beginning of the practices, let paradise be paradise. Stop with the critical thinking. Stop judging this is good and this is bad. Because also, this is where the second noble truth really kicks in with great power. If we want something because we like it. If we like it, in other words, we are all judgments of good and bad have a sequence in the mind. And the first sequence is, I like it. If I like it, I want it. If I like it and want it, it must be good. There's the judgment. Or if I don't like it, then if I don't like it, I want to get rid of it. And if I want to get rid of it, it might be bad or it should be bad. 
Okay. We can have that feeling of I like it and I don't like it one time when we were a kid and for the rest of our lives we don't like that thing without ever re-examining it again. Uh, kids get that way with food for, from time to time. Like a, a mom did not do a good job of making green peas and the kid don't like these green peas. Every time mom uh, makes green peas now this kid will remember, oh, I didn't like them that time, therefore these green peas are as bad as those green peas, and I don't like green peas. You see how we get that set up? We do that mm -hmm. times a thousand, and all of a sudden now we've got a thousand different green peas uh, that we don't like. Yeah, it's a habit, not, right? Yeah, it's a, we get into the habit of not liking so let's get back then to this bit, this point about that the very first thing that we need to do in any kind of meditation practice anapanasati is that we have to remove the unwholesome thoughts. Which means that we have to be on guard because we've gotten quite a habit of unwholesome thoughts and that we can see unwholesome thoughts as critical thoughts of liking and not liking. If I like something and I want it, I've got to have it. And if I've got to have it because I like it and I want it, that means that right now without it, I'm not good enough. And that's a very interesting way of, of seeing that, in fact, because uh, at one time when I heard about the three kinds of feelings, I was saying, oh, well, we've got one good feeling and two bad feelings. I've got a good feeling, I like it. I've got a bad feeling, I don't like it. And I got a third feeling, I'm confused. Well, if I'm confused, then uh, possibly it's bad. And so normally when we're confused to something, we will say it is bad rather than inviting it to be good. This is part of the territorial, or actually, yes, it's a territorial instinct. In the sense of it's from way out yonder. If I don't know what this is, it's probably dangerous. But I was wrong with that idea. That, in fact, all three kinds of feelings that we're talking about have disadvantages. They're dangerous. If I want something, that's dangerous. If I don't want something, that's dangerous. And if I'm confused about whether I want it or not, that's still dangerous. This is why it's important for us to start understanding what it is that we're feeling and how we make these judgments of liking and not liking that lead to good and bad. Because, in fact, what we want to do is to stop having those kind of thoughts about is it good, is it bad. Having the kind of thoughts of critical. Now, we could say that this society that we live in was um, created with critical thinking. That we couldn't build an automobile until we start critically thinking about a horse carriage. How can we put a motor on this horse carriage so we don't have horses, etc., like that? And so on and on we go with the critical thinking, and our entire society is built upon critical thinking. But the problem is, is that not only is each individual person critical of the uh, world that they live in and all of the uh, environment and the things that they're doing, they wind up turning that criticism on the inside. Mm -hmm. 
and becoming critical of, of ourselves on the inside. And this is uh, because of that critical, we find things wrong with ourselves that we can't instantly fix. And because we can't instantly fix, we're left with feeling bad. I found something wrong and I can't fix it. Oh, poor me. How do we handle that? The, 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 um, actually, the answer to that lies with the mafia boss. The mafia don knows exactly how to handle these things. What does the mafia boss say? He says, forget about it. Just forget about it. And so the uh, the under criminal, the, you know, the, the young guy who's a criminal wannabe, and he sees the old uh, mob boss just killed somebody dead. And the young uh, mob uh, young mobster freaks out about that. And the old mobster says, forget about it. In that respect, that young mob boss, if he does forget about it, he'll feel better in that moment. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is the kind of the way that we're going to start practicing Anapanasati is just to forget about it. To forget about everything that's unwholesome. And only have wholesome thoughts in the mind. I know some people will be unhappy when I talk about Mafia Boss saying forget about it. But at least that's good advice. It's just because, I mean, if you worry about that, that guy that the Mafia Boss has just killed, you're not going to bring him back to life, no matter how much worry you put into it. Yeah. yeah. And so you might as well forget about it. It's in the past now. Can't do anything about that. So this is the way uh, that we look at it. Instead of hating the mafia boss, because in fact, in this regard, we're the mafia boss. We're the one who did the deed in the first place. And that's where these memories are coming from. And so the better thing to do is to forget about the past and come back to this present moment in a wholesome way. This way, what we've got now is one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought. This is the place now where real noting can become effective. If we start denoting while there are still unwholesome thoughts in the mind, then what are we going to be noting? Unwholesome thoughts. And if we start noting unwholesome thoughts, we may get carried away with those unwholesome thoughts. And so um, if we can come to the state of bringing the mind to one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought, now we can find a relax. Now this is a real state of relaxation. And so getting one wholesome thought after another in a lane, that's actually very relaxing. Because in fact, the, the unwholesome thoughts are going to keep you busy. A lot of the unwholesome thoughts have to do with work that needs to be done. Jobs that need to be filled. And if you can take those unwholesome thoughts out of the mind, then we can come to be satisfied. But let's say that somehow or another, the, uh, the meditator uh, is not removing unwholesome thoughts completely. Therefore, when he starts noting, what is it that he's going to be noting is going to be some unwholesome thoughts. 
And then you kind of get the sense almost that it's not working, right? Because you're becoming more aware of suffering. Then you become more aware of suffering because now you're looking at it and things can go downhill from there. Um, so if we can bring the mind to the point of having only wholesome thoughts, now when we, re- we start to note, we can note only wholesome things. Because we don't have any unwholesome things to note, because we've already eliminated those out of the mind. So the kinds of things that are worthy of noting now are different. When someone is in this state, then in fact this state that we're talking about, where the mind is completely wholesome, one wholesome thought after another after another, basically these wholesome thoughts begin to affect the feelings also. So that not only do we think wholesome thoughts and gladden the mind, but we begin to feel really good also. Once we get our state in, uh, ourselves into feeling really good, then the things that we can begin to note is these feelings of feeling very good. We can note what the mind is doing. We can note, in fact, how things really are. But if we don't have the mind feel, uh, completely free from hindrances, then what we're going to note is going to be trouble, hindrances. This is why it's so valuable to get the mind into a state where um, there are no more unwholesome thoughts. But for some reason, this is not taught in Western meditation. And that, in fact, there are two issues that are not taught in Western meditation, and both of them are interrelated the way that Kishan had pointed out. And that is, is that if things are already set up, if God's going to take care of you, if everything is already wholesome like that, then the job of the meditator should be dead easy. Except that it's not. The reason for it is because the meditator's already, over the years, gotten himself into a whole lot of unwholesome stuff that he has learned from all of the other people who were doing unwholesome stuff right from the very beginning. Then, in fact, you could say that some, in, some instinctual behavior 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 100,000 years ago, that uh, instinctual behavior was very appropriate at that time. And so humanity taught that behavior generation after generation after generation all the way up to the present moment and times have changed. So that that behavior that was appropriate 100,000 years ago and those feelings that are appropriate 100,000 years ago are not appropriate today and yet we keep being uh, handing those teachings down to one person after another throughout history. Parent to child, parent to child, parent to child, teaching what used to be a wholesome activity that's now become unwholesome. Can I and ask nobody... a quick question without going on too big Absolutely. of a tangent? So, my first thought would be like the point at which the like shift was would be like when, or say like there was a point in history where it was more. Um, beneficial for happiness um, to um, 
practice like the getting rid of the unwholesome thoughts and the fears like when the predators weren't so like is that when the four requisites are met or when is that no you're taking actually a little bit too modern let's go really way back in time okay let us say that you lived in a jungle as a primitive being and that fear comes up Mm -hmm. what are you going to do with that fear in that jungle and you become afraid. What are you going to do? Look around. Going to notice. You're going to start observing. You're going to find out what was it that made that uh, slight noise that perked up your ears and got your attention. Okay. The same thing that can happen, except that now you're no longer in the jungle, out there where there really is danger, and that it's your survival that's on the line. Now you're sitting at a desk in the office and the boss comes up and starts yelling at you. So we've like way overdone it. Like we followed those instincts and keep following them. Like, is there like a theoretical point where like we could have just been like, we don't need those instincts anymore. Or it feels like there's kind of a balance. If let us if say the survival of the species at mind. Yeah. That, instincts have always and it looks like for uh for a long time at least that instincts will have some value okay uh but the problem with the instincts now is is that the instincts how how to say it the instincts themselves are automatic because they're automatic that means that they're almost kind of hardwired and that things happen very quickly in the mind. You need things to operate very quickly in the mind because in the primitive days when things really were dangerous, you you can fall into one or two classifications, the quick and the dead. You're either going to respond quickly to that fire or you're going to die. Yeah, but and the now one who dies don't it, reproduce, right? Yeah. And the one who dies don't reproduce, and so he's not part of our gene pool. Mm-hmm. In fact, you could go the other direction on that and and say that there are two kinds of people in the world, the ones who really like sex and the ones who don't. The ones who don't like sex died out. Guess who you are a product of? Yeah. And when we recognize it like that, you say, oh, yeah, that there's those things are just built in. They're instinctual. But the problem with those instincts is, is that they give off a lot of false positives. In the jungle, the, po- uh, the false positives are rare because the likelihood is it to be real. Now, we can go so far as to say that you and I, the three of us, let's say, are walking down the path 100,000 years ago. Maybe loincloth, maybe not. Maybe a spear, maybe not. We're just walking down the path, and we hear a noise behind us. One of us turns around to see what that noise was, and the other two immediately start running. If that was a predator, who gets eaten? The one who looks around, right? Uh huh. So the one who's curious gets eaten, and the one mm-hmm. who is afraid immediately survives. And it's funny. I immediately equate that to us being on our computer so much. That's like com- 
like taken advantage of. There's kind of that instinct. I don't know if this is what you'd say is that similar instinct, but like we immediately have the thought of like checking social media or whatever. And it's so readily available for us now where it can be like, instead of being curious and looking around, you just immediately click because it's like one tap away and then you get sucked down this hole. Right. But, um, the, the question is, why did you click on the social media? Is because you wanted yeah. something. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you want something? Because um, you liked it, right? Or well, there's possibly, not directly. In, but. Our, in our situation, we could say that um, uh, one reason that someone could, could go on to the social internet is because he had the thought that somebody has answered my email. In fact, that's one of the ways that people will get on social media often is that they'll post something on uh, social media and then they'll get a note, a message, an email or something that somebody's responded to us. And so now we've got the job to do to go back and find out what they said and to respond to that, keeping that vicious cycle going. But let's look at it from the perspective of the issue that most of the fear, going back to the fact that the, that the boss has just come up behind us and is, and is starting to yell at us. The same kind of fear mechanism comes to play with the boss that came to play 100,000 years ago when we heard the rustle. In other words, fear comes up. Because all the ancestors who uh, had curiosity have been eaten and therefore, we don't get curious. We don't even get curious about the boss. We become afraid instead. This is a habit that we've gotten ourselves into, but it's a habit is based upon the instinct. And so we can say that these two things work together. The instincts and the, uh, the habit system that we built up using those instincts from childhood. And in both cases, there was no wisdom involved. Now we're going to start adding wisdom to that situation so that we can begin to examine how we feel and take an appropriate action for it. So when fear comes up, we can notice the fear and say, ah, but there's really nothing to be afraid of. This is just my boss yelling. He is not an alligator. He's not going to eat me. There is no danger here, and yet we perceive danger because we perceive danger the same way when we were a child and the parent yelled at us. Mm-hmm. Because the child perceives real danger, in fact, the child may get punished or hit or whatever like that. And so we can have then, we can see how these two things work together. The way that we learn things ignorantly as a child fits right into this instinctual behavior. So when you ask the question, do we ever get over the instincts, the answer is no, but we begin to understand them correctly and treat them like friends rather than uh, having to go along with the feelings Mm -hmm. that they're better to be investigated. Why? Because fear is an unwholesome feeling. And it normally has associated with unwholesome thoughts. And we can look around and say, hey, really, there's nothing to be afraid of. Let me take a deep breath and come back out of my fear and come back into a wholesome state. 
This is questions? where. Go ahead, Keyshawn. Um, something that I had been thinking about was, you know, kind of in that place where you say we take a deep breath or, you know, we come into contact with this fear or we come into contact with the hindrance. And some of these hindrances are like, uh, sometimes it can be really painful, like a really uh, strong, you know, thought that you really didn't want to have. And, and, and maybe like, you know, where I'm at right now personally is like a thought like that could come, but I know that uh, with the next few mind moments, I can kind of, you know, breathe and, and, and put the mind onto something more wholesome and kind of get over it pretty quickly. But I was wondering if there's anything in the suits maybe that talks about like, if you have an idea about like sort of just having maybe like that toughness for that period of time when it is there, like when that thing that's really painful is there, like if there's like a, uh, you know, cause it, it can be really painful. It's like, what do you kind of, you know, I was thinking like you do kind of need to like not have a a glass jaw about it, if you know what I mean. Like to not just fold in that moment and to kind of have a bit of a bit of uh, resilience <laughs> so you can survive the next few mind moments and come out of it, you know? Okay. Well, one of the ways of, of understanding that is sometimes just one thought just one little thought, and that thought may be, in fact, a visual image of something that was a disaster, something that happened. Let us say that it was, um, just as an example, um, I got mad and punched my dad. And I remember that because I remember seeing punching my dad. And that happened when I was a teenager or something like that. And so here I'm 75, and I remember punching my dad, and I feel very bad about it. Okay, and those bad feelings wind up taking longer than just the thought of punching my dad. Okay, I don't think I ever yeah. punched my dad actually, but in any case, uh, using that as an <laughs> example, um, that when we have that thought of doing that and mm -hmm. that bad feeling comes, there are several things that we can do with that that will be all wholesome kind of thoughts. A kind of thought that would be wholesome is, oh, I don't do that anymore. That's not who I am now. In other words, we disassociate ourselves from the past. It would have been better to have forgotten about it and not remembered that I slugged my dad. But now that I have remembered slugging him and I feel all of this bad and everything like that, then the first thought that I can have is, that's not me. I don't do that. That even if now I was with my dad, I would not hit him. That's not who I am. Okay, that's in fact one of the uh, the parts of understanding anatta is to understanding who we are not. And one of the things for sure that you are not, Keyshawn, and not Parker. Parker, you are not who you used to be. You're who you are now. And so we can forgive ourselves and, and better not to just forgive, but forget. In fact, for, forgetting is better than forgiveness. Yeah. The only things that we forgive are the hard feelings that we keep attached to. If we've forgotten all about it, there's nothing to forgive. So, so that's the way to yeah. do that is to throw those kind of thoughts out of the mind with the idea, I don't do that. But we're still left 
with that feeling of what terror or uh, uh, a gripping inside or a tightness or uh, whatever that feeling is in the way that we describe it. Again, the way to deal with that is with the breath. To take a deep breath and say, oh, I feel that sensation, but I can manage it. I can maneuver it. That that's just a sensation and I can handle it. And I can breathe into it, make friends with it, try to manipulate it, change it. This is, again, exactly what we were talking about from the very beginning. But this is an active meditation. You've got to seize your object. So if you have a thought about striking your dad and that comes up with a, a sense of, let us call it anxiety, or a sense of fear or frustration or anguish or whatever that feeling is that comes up, We've now got the job, according to Mahasi, according to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, according to the Buddha, according to any good meditation teacher, we've got to seize that object. We can't say, oh no, anxiety. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. Oh no. When we recognize yeah. oh, anxiety, I feel it. Now I'm going to go actively after it. I'm going to go chase it down. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to confront it. I'm going to start to manipulate it, to start to change it. If it's here, can I move it down to there? Does it grow on an in-breath and shrink on an out-breath? How can I manipulate this feeling of anxiety that I've gotten because I remembered something that happened 40 years ago? In my case, that would be <laughs> closer to 55 years ago no 60 years ago to be honest because <laughs> that's how long it yeah, was yeah. since I lived with my dad that's interesting it's been 60 years since I lived with my dad that's a long time anyway back to the point we can still in old age remember things that happened in childhood and that one thought will bring up bad feelings if we are aware of that, if we're not, we'll continue to feel bad. These are just anxiety feelings that can be perpetuated. In fact, we can have another thought about hitting my dad. We can start to feel really bad about hitting him. And as we do, that anxiety will build up. So the first thing we need to do is to remove that thought out of the mind and bring something in the here now. And one of them would be that I renounce that kind of behavior. That's not who I am. And along with that is the same thought of, aha, I see you, Myra. Aha, I can see that that's what's happening. And so I can throw those thoughts out of the mind, but now I have to seize that object of anxiety and start to manipulate it too. So everything about Anapanasati is an active meditation. We have to actively take control of the breath. We have to actively take care of control of the mind to throw those thoughts out. We have to actively start dealing with the feelings. And the way that we do that is with thoughts of nurturing. Like that, that nurturing thought of, I don't do that anymore. I don't do that. That's not who I am. That the way that I do things now is by nurturing, by 
caring, by being friendly. And so we start friendly thoughts and talks like this. This is how we get ourselves back into one wholesome thought after another, after another, after another, and that gets the mind fit for work. So, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa actually points out now there's four kinds of feelings. The Buddha didn't talk about it, but Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa is, is spot on with this. There are actually four kinds of feelings, not three. The three kinds of feelings that we have is liking, ignorantly, not liking ignorantly, or having a feeling that is confused in the sense that I don't know whether I like it or not. Those are the normal three feelings, but all three of those feelings are ignorant feelings. In other words, we're not really paying attention to them, and when they are ignorant, they become part of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering, because they're ignorant. So there's this fourth kind of feeling. And that fourth kind of feeling is what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa calls a wise feeling. And then you could say, well, that means that there's a wise uh, liking, a wise not liking, and a wise uh, confusion feeling. And Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa says, no, because the liking kind of feeling is a liking uh, that is ignorant that there is a different kind of feeling that is a liking feeling that's wise, and that is a merely pleasant feeling in this present moment. Okay, so a wise feeling then is different from the ignorant feelings, and because it's wise, and that we have power over it in the sense of an active meditation, that means we're going to make that feeling the feeling the way that we want to feel. So, if you had a choice over how would you want to feel, how would you want to feel? Now, now when I ask that question, I'm not, I'm not asking it for this particular moment on this particular day and that the decision has to be made for all time, but rather this is the kind of question that is asked that you should be asking when you are wise, when you are there monitoring and looking at those feelings, what kind of feeling do I want to have right now? And almost always the kind of feeling that I want to have right now is going to be the feeling of safety, the feeling of security, the feeling of confidence, the feeling of satisfaction, the feeling of contentment. And so these are the feelings that we actually want to manufacture and propagate. There's also, you could say that, well, I don't want any of those feelings. I want elation. I want exuberance. Okay, well, that's a feeling too. And that's a really positive host of feeling. But elation and exuberance has a lot of energy built into it that is not all that restful, not all that peaceful. So after we go through stages of elation, these stages of exuberance, we can go back into a more relaxed place of safe, secure, satisfied, content. So these are actually not just feelings to have, but these are actually objects that are worthy of being noted in the Mahasi method. What are the things that are to be noted in the Mahasi method then is when the mind is fit for work, we're going to be noticing those kinds of things 
better fit for work. In other words, if we have joy, we're going to notice joy. If we have elation, we're going to notice elation. If we've got a mind fit for work, we're going to notice that too. If we're going to have a mind that can apply itself to the wholesome and sustain itself to the wholesome, then that's something to be noted. And so the kinds of things that we're going to note are the kinds of things that are going to be noted when you're actually in first jhana. So we're going to be actually uh, noting items of the first jhana. Also beginning to note how the mind works in the sense of the progression of the sequence. The very interesting thing uh, on the list of items that the Buddha puts down, he puts a lot of the items that are on the Eightfold Noble Path and the items of the first jhana. And he also puts items of the um, uh, seven factors of enlightenment, which is the same thing basically as the the Eightfold Noble Path, except the seven factors of enlightenment is when the path factors are skillful. Once the path factors are skillful, now they become factors of enlightenment. And then the last item on the list is, is the way the mind works or Paticca Samapada. These are the things that are worth noting once the mind is fit for work. To note these feelings. But what feelings are we? The feelings of satisfaction, the feelings of security, the feelings of contentment. These are the things to be noted. And so also you say, well, in Paticca Samapada we have the five aggregates, the way they're put together that leads up to internal representation of an external object followed by contact. So that's an item that we should be watching in uh, our noting is look at how things contact us. What is it that impresses us? What is it that hits us? And we can begin to take control of those objects also. What is it that that hits us? And then in Paticca Samapada, we know that the the contact, pasa, leads to feelings. If those feelings are ignorant, it leads to grasping, to clinging, to the sense of self, the rebirth into the woeful states, and to dukkha. Well, guess what? If our mind is completely wholesome, and we are in fact in the first jhana because we have um, freedom from hindrance, applied, sustained thought, with rapture and sukha born of that pleasure that means that we are not ignorant we are wise at those feelings and wise at that point of contact which means that now we are not going to note tanha because it's not there we're not we're we're going to note that in fact there, there is no grasping there is no clinging there is no self here there is no dukkha here Aha, third noble truth, there is no dukkha here. So in fact, part of this noting is to note what's not there. Mm -hmm. And so when we note that there is no fear there, there is no dukkha there, then we can say, congratulations, third noble truth, freedom from suffering. uh, Kishan, I can't hear you. Don't hear you. Parker, are you still there? Can I hear you? Yep. Yeah, I, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Awesome. So, Keishan, I can't hear you. I don't know. 
Sorry about that. Anyway, back to back to what we were talking about then. This this whole um, idea about the noting is such that we have to know that there are some things worth noting and some things not worth noting. And if we note things that are unwholesome, then we should recognize that they are unwholesome immediately and then take the effort to throw so those things out. So they're not to be like out. noted and observed, but just to throw them out like we have been doing before. Right. You, you, yeah, you've been there before. You've seen it before. How many times? <laughs> I know what that feels like. Yeah, uh-huh. my entire life, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, an example of that is, is that you look in the refrigerator and you see a bad orange in there. You pick it up, you're going to eat it, and it's soft. Okay? How long are you going to play with that bad orange before you actually just throw it out? Yeah. And some of us are going to say, well, wait a minute. There's got to be some good in that orange someplace. Let me get a knife, and I'm going to cut it open and spend all of this time trying to find something good about it. And I wind up throwing the whole thing out anyway. Yeah. Okay. So that's the same thing with the... uh, um, uh, with the meditation, except that the refrigerator is absolutely enormous. And the number of uh, thoughts in that refrigerator are also enormous. Mm-hmm. So why should I inspect this one thought that we've already determined is unwholesome, is bad? Why do we keep wanting it to become good again? The best thing to do is just to throw it out to forget about it because there's lots of good fish in the sea there's no reason for us to keep eating rotten fish lots of good thoughts in that mind we might as well start having some good thoughts instead of some unwholesome thoughts this is the real reason um actually we're talking about two twin issues One issue is is that we have to actually take uh, the right effort. This is an active meditation. This is not passive. We have to seize the breath. We have to seize whatever object it is. We have to seize these thoughts and throw them out when they're unwholesome. And if these thoughts, unwholesome thoughts, uh, create a bad feeling like anxiety, fear, tension, worry, any of those kind of feelings that come up, then we have to seize those feelings also and kind of throw them out the same way that we threw out the thoughts, but a little bit differently. The technique for thoughts is a little bit different than the feelings because, in fact, we get to the feelings through the thoughts anyway. Like I said, we talk ourselves into feeling bad. We can talk ourselves into feeling good. So that one thought about hitting my dad, and now I'm full of bad feelings, right? So to get rid of the feelings, we like play with them, right? We we play with them. Mm-hmm. Can you can you all hear me now? Yep, yep you're good now. Oh, now I hear you. You're back. I fixed it. I feel like a computer was not fixed it. Okay, good. Uh, I I was I was just wanted to throw in the little phrase that uh, there's no village in the forest. That one <laughs> you were you you were saying how there's there's no this and there's no that like the mm-hmm. no self and or hindrances, no hindrances here, things like that, you know. That's an actually interesting point that you made. This is a teaching of the Buddha himself. Uh, he gave that to Ananda. I think it's in Sutta number 122. 
when he's talking about that the village is absent from the farm. There's no village here. Yeah. That's actually part of the practice that uh, a lot of, uh, of the, the Buddhist teaching is to take us towards emptiness in the sense of investigating not what is there, but to investigate what's not there. Mm. That in fact, uh, um, Doyle, who wrote the books on uh, Sherlock Holmes, that was part of Sherlock Holmes' brilliance was not that he was looking at just what was there. He was noting that there's something that's missing here that should be here, and that the fact that it's not here is an indication of what really happened. Mm. Okay? And so we can think of it like that, that part of our investigation is not just to investigate what's there, but to also notice what's not there. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to... Uh, go ahead extend on what I had brought up about the, the strong feeling and you were just touching on it again there when you started to say like that it was, it was kind of the last thing you said before this but what was coming to mind was that when we when we see the strong feeling what I what I used to do is kind of like be really afraid of it sort of and like oh no like or like the thought like the thought that I know is going to trigger just the most worst emotions like the thought about hitting your dad like that that's going to turn that emotion way on like full on and mm -hmm. then the the immediate reaction for me initially was kind of like to like try and get rid of it as soon as possible or like well like you it's it's difficult to kind of do that but if you oh yeah so this is what I'm saying so if you actually take that approach that you said where you um, are not afraid of it and you kind of investigate it and you start to play with it, well, you kind of remove a component that was kind of causing all the suffering in the first place, which was not liking uh -huh. it. <laughs> now you don't have the suffering anymore. And now that's one of those things that's not here right now is that I'm not afraid of this thing and that actually I have control right now and actually like I... I could actually play around with it and feel good. It's like that's a big deal because it's like if you all the horrible things you could possibly think of, well, now all you got to do is get toss the thought out, and then all you got is a feeling, and you can handle that easily. And then there you go. Okay. Okay. This is a way of looking at it in the sense that this is a positive feedback loop system. What do we mean by that? The positive feedback or uh, system. Is, is that when something is going in a certain direction, it creates things that build up the momentum so that it happens faster and faster. An example of that is with global warming, when the dark color sea will absorb uh, energy from the sun, but ice white color does not. Therefore, as the ice sheets melt and the uh, ocean is exposed, the ocean gets even more hotter because the ice melts faster and then and yeah. it starts going faster. The same thing with tundra. That so long as the tundra is snow covered, it's white colored in the uh, in, and as the tundra warms up and the ice sheet melts off the top of it, now the tundra is very dark color. And now when the, because it's got dark patches in it, it heats up even faster, melts even more snow which makes more surface dark, which, and so 
global warming is a positive feedback loop, and the scientists know that, and the average person doesn't say, well, it doesn't look to me like it's getting warmer. That's because they're not looking at the satellite images and recognizing the whole world is just getting darker and hotter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But now we can see that that same kind of feedback loop here works in a positive way for us, that once we go in the direction of only having positive thoughts, it takes us automatically right into the right direction. That positive feedback loop is one of the reasons why I would uh, point to the jhanas like this. Imagine that all four jhanas together is like a violin with four strings on it. In order to play the first note, you have to have the entire violin and just one string. And so the uh, developing the first jhana is like getting the body, getting the neck, getting the curl, getting the bridge, um, uh, uh, getting the thing tuned and, and all yeah. of that in the sense of getting one string going. And now we can play one note on that violin. But now we've got a whole violin and all we have to do is add the other strings. Yeah. And so and the reason for that is because of this positive feedback loop. Once we get the mind completely wholesome, then it's fairly easy to start putting the gaps in between those thoughts, knowing that when we start filling those gaps with thoughts again, the thoughts that we're going to fill it with are still going to be wholesome thoughts. But if we're practicing in a way to where we still have hindrances arising, then when we have a gap between the wholesome thoughts, guess where the unwholesome thoughts are going to pop right up? Okay, yeah. so... And, but getting those wholesome thoughts one after another after another is like a very positive feedback loop. It really gets the momentum going. So it's like really a first real step because like it, if, if it's still unwholesome thoughts and positive spots, the unwholesome thought could still take throttle, right? And you're mm -hmm. not necessarily making any progress um, if exactly. you follow that too long. And I noticed that with the unwholesome thought, let's say we go back to the punching the dad scenario. If you are, you want to do that, huh? If you, <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to verbally say the word. But anyways, no. But so if you avoid, if you, if you kind of do have that fear about that thought and that feeling, it's like more likely to come back up. But if you know you could kind of throw it out and handle it and, and that feeling, you're not afraid of the feeling at least that'll come, then it, it, I find that it bothers you less, like it comes back less. It does. That's, that's the big point of it. It, it. Once we recognize solidly and take control over that object, oh, you are unwholesome. Out of here. The likelihood of it popping right back is not high. Now, for the very beginner, it might be. And so you keep grabbing that thought and throwing it out and throwing it out, and pretty soon you don't have it anymore. If you hadn't actively taken the effort to throw it out, then it would come into the mind and invade and remain and remain and remain. And you know that you can get yourself worked up and spend all afternoon worried about something, and you're not doing anything about it. So is that the purpose of... Um, you know, the monks have the monthly, like, apologies. Is I don't remember the exact word you said. 
Um, Patty Moore. Patty Mock. Um, like you tell your teacher and then you might go to apologize. Is that to like really concrete that this this memory is not me, so I don't have to think about it anymore? Yes, and it also has the quality of the rehabilitation. And that part of it is that this is not me means that you're actually renouncing it. If you take it as is that, yeah, I did it. This is me. This is who I am. Then that has the quality. I'm going to keep doing it. This is me. But when we have the, the, the quality of this is not me, then that automatically has that quality of renunciation built into it. I'm throwing that out. So we begin to renounce these thoughts. That's not who I am. So in the Patty Mork, that's just kind of um, uh, more powerful that you're actually willing to tell it to a teacher out loud. And then when it comes up again, you're like, oh, I already took care of that. I don't even need to think about it anymore, right? I don't have to think about it anymore. And it's a lot stronger than just telling yourself that because you already talked it through with someone and yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, because I talked it through with someone and we got that finished with it now. So those kind of thoughts then are unlikely to invade the mind and remain again. Because mm-hmm. now it's almost like post-traumatic stress disorder in reverse. Normally post-traumatic stress disorder is because of either a, a recurring or a very big event that was quite stressful. Now we're looking at it in in the sense of uh, post, uh, how to say it, relief. Instead of stress, it's post relief. And um, it's not uh, a distress anymore. So it's not post-traumatic stress disorder it's a post um, elation order. That same kind of thing that hits us hard, that makes us feel so bad. Now, through the Patty Mork and other things like that, we're actually renouncing. We're renouncing it. We're throwing it out. This is not who I am. This is exactly the, the pr- perspective of taking a vow should do. Except that the problem with the vows are that the vows are often by some authority or someone else trying to get you to stop doing something. And so you take a vow to not do it. But this is not based upon that you know that this is wrong behavior because someone else or the Bible told you so. This is wrong behavior that you know is wrong because you saw yourself do it and the results of that were um, painful stressful and therefore not to be repeated okay and so uh in that regard um we can help students understand the nature of dukkha under understand the nature of uh dissatisfaction but the student has to see it for himself once the student sees it for himself then he can take the escape. But the student has to be able to see the danger himself. So I can harp and harp and harp on about unwholesome thoughts, but when the student begins to see how these unwholesome thoughts, in fact, interfere with his own life and joy, 
that's when he'll say, okay, now I'm going to do it. I am, in fact, going to take that right effort to throw these thoughts out because now I can see that they're wholesome. Not because some teacher told me so, but because I can see it for myself. Yeah, and then once it gets rolling, they're like, why would I ever do anything different? Exactly. And now once we get that thing rolling, then it's got its own inertia, its own momentum. It's a positive feedback system. And we wonder, why was I ever like that in the first place? Yeah. The answer to that was because I was trained that way from all the people that were around when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And so this is was, the way. Go ahead, Kukan. Uh, I, I was thinking about this, but it, it might not really be that applicable. But it's just kind of like this whole Patty Mock system. I see the value in it. And I see that in myself at work when I make a mistake or something like that. And when I, you know, just go and, you know, correct the mistake and say, hey, like, this is what happened or whatever it is. But, you know, with my job, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, you don't want to make the same mistake twice. But it's like there's so many moving pieces and I'm moving through these different models, these different, you know, things. And, it, and it's like, I'm, I'm not sure how to, you, even if I vow to not do that again, it's like, it's it's still possible that I screw that up. And now. I was thinking of another example where that's similar. It's like, oh, like an NBA player practice like knows how to shoot free throws like really well, but they'll still miss it in a game. And it's like, even no matter how much they say to themselves that they'll miss it, it's like there's they won't miss anymore. Like they're still viable to miss maybe ten percent of their free throws. You know? Okay. All right. But now you've gotten the idea that you can only be happy if you make a free throw, and if you miss this one, you'll be unhappy. And most basketball players play it like that. Yeah. The possibility is is that you can practice free throws and enjoy every one of them. And we only pay attention to what's going on. Really know how you're holding the ball and keep practicing and keep noting what's going on. And pretty soon it won't be that you missed 10% of them. Now you'll only miss 5% because you're really paying attention. But if you really hate it that you missed 10% of your free throws and you don't like what's going on, then you begin to avoid it. And pretty soon you're not even doing any free throws at all. You're not even practicing. And so when you get into the game, what can I say? It really does have a lot to do with attitude. Yeah. That's the avoiding again, or like that we just talked about, basically, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Feedback loop. It's not a matter of do you miss free uh, 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 10% of the free throws. It's a matter of do you also miss 10% of your opportunities to feel good and you choose to feel bad because you missed a free throw. Yeah. And if you don't so throw those out, out, they'll just grow. Right. right. And not only that, but you let those misses build up. Instead of throwing this uh, out, okay, I missed that one. Never mind, let's keep playing. Mm-hmm. Instead, we say, yeah. oh, well, I missed this one too, and I just missed one. Oh, I'm getting so bad. This is so hard. I used to be good at this, and now I'm not anymore. And we actually talk yeah. ourselves into screwing up. Yeah. Wow. Because we're critical of it. Yeah. Instead of out there playing the game. Let's let's enjoy playing basketball. Who cares whether I have to make a free throw every time or not? Right. 
Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so people get really good at the sport, but they have no fun. That's interesting, isn't it? I remember one player. His name was Lemon Metalark. He played for a team you probably never heard of, the Glo uh, the Harlan Globetrotters. I've heard and of they, them. And yeah, they changed from an actual professional basketball team into an exhibition team. I think somebody was really brilliant. And what the Harlem Globetrotters done, uh, did back in the 1960s, because um, I was around a lot, I, I, I knew. Because I saw them at different high schools. I was in this high school and they were there, and then in another high school in South Carolina that I was there. And they, this professional basketball team loved to come and have an exhibition match against some local team, the high school uh, basketball team or whatever like that. And it was always invariably that, uh, that Lemon Metalock would set up his opponent in that team for that student to make that goal. And that everybody cheers, but they're half cheering for Metalock also because they know that he's doing this. He's setting them up for success. It was really brilliant. I mean, everybody loved uh, Metalark because he was not interested in, in making the goal. He was interested in um, helping the students, entertaining, and just enjoying himself out on the court. Whether he missed the shot himself or not was, is irrelevant. But in professional sports, whether he hits that mark or not is the whole game. And everybody's tense and uptight, and they got to have that score and all of that kind of stuff. And so <laughs> if you're not angry at yourself, they'll judge you. They'll tell you you're doing it wrong because you need to get yeah, angry at yourself. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, Michael Jordan, I watched that documentary. Like, he's idealized, or like, like he would go out and find something that didn't exist to get angry about just so he could perform better. He should have gotten some Dama <laughs> so that he yeah. could go out and find something that he likes so that he can throw better. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny, too, because it's like it, I can kind of understand it, though. It's like they, they don't want um, like people don't want the NBA players to kind of like be friends like on different teams because they kind of want like that drama, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of like they want to see you take it really hard when you lose. So that they know that, you know, it means a lot to you. Exactly. And in fact, you can see that in politics. That was especially true. Nowadays, the politicians are supposed to and they actually do hate each other. But 25 years ago, the politicians would get together about and, and, and have a friendly discussion over what they're going to argue with in public. Each other over. <laughs> But actually, today, today in the NBA, it's uh, that's the reason I brought that up is because that actually seems to be happening where like the the players are like uh, a lot more friendly with each other, like outside of the off the court type of deal. Uh, I just, I just think that's interesting um, how today it's like a little bit more like that. Maybe with social media because of that that kind of thing. Well. As Martin Luther King said, that the arc of the universe is long, but it arcs or bends in the direction of uh, justice. And I would make a change to that 
in the sense that it doesn't bend towards justice, but it kind of bends away from ignorance. So that as humanity gets more educated and understands things better, we can get out of our instinctual behavior. It's actually the issue is the distinction between um, instinctual behavior versus wise behavior. And the humanity is going in the direction of wise behavior and coming out of instinctual behavior, just going it very, very, very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> Might be uh, gone before so we can. <laughs> but things are not as violent as they used to be. Things are getting going in that direction, that as people wake up, we begin to see things better and better. So naturally, in a more enlightened society, uh, the opponents in a basketball game are going to be more friendly. They can actually be friendly and, you know, black and white or red and green or whatever color their uniforms are. And they can not only be friendly off the court, they can be friendly on the court, too. And people like that, too. Yeah, they they definitely are. And it's interesting, too, because... You'll see, like, the media come out and say, um, oh, this player is, like, texting this player advice, like, on a daily basis or something like that. And they'll say, Michael Jordan would have never done that. They, you know, they, he would have never done that. It's a, com- it's a competition. He would, you know, wouldn't be helping out the enemy, <laughs> that kind of thing. I know. Well, that same mentality has, um, let us say, as part of our society... When Dhamma teachers then arrive on the scene, the Dhamma teachers are going to be competitive with each other. That uh, if I make my living off of doing uh, retreats and I want uh, all the students to come do my retreats so I can get money, then I'm unlikely to send my students to another teacher at another retreat center way over yonder, even though that may be in the best interest of the student. That's the old way of looking at it, and this is part of the reason why we're changing the open song or developing the open sangha collective, is for the teachers to learn to become friends with each other. If the teachers can all learn to become friends with each other, then we can start to have a real sangha in the West. Yeah, that's the whole point of it. Is is that right now we need to get out of the money and get out of the competition and get into the friendship and a friendly environment rather than a competitive environment. And right now, Western Buddhism is competitive. Mm -hmm. I want my book to sell. I want my students, you know, I'm not going to send all my students to some other teacher. So we need to have that um, um, cooperation, that open, friendly environment. Another way that I can talk about it like that is, is that each one of you have gone through school in in the West. And you had a first grade teacher and a second grade teacher and a third grade teacher and a fourth grade teacher, right? And on and on. Do you remember uh, when you were in the first or the second grade of standing in the hall and watching the first and the second grade teachers that you had argue and fight with each other? Or did they cooperate? for the benefit of the children. So which was the better teacher, the first grade teacher or the second grade teacher? 
the answer is, is that that question is irrelevant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why do we do this then with um, Dhamma teachers? Why do we compare this Dhamma teacher better than that Dhamma teacher? Or he's right and he's wrong and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's the fact that when we were first graders, we were, let us say, more wholesome than we are as adults. That yeah. it's not the children in the first and the second grade who are comparing the teachers, it's the parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because they want something out of it. Because they want something out of it. And because they want something out of it, I want my child's teacher to be the very best teacher there is. All right? And what we do with that is we're training our own children to be dissatisfied with our teachers. Yeah, by high school, they're the ones criticizing. They're the ones telling their parents who the bad teachers are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> and so this whole idea of friendship and cooperation can is I the ultimate Can I tangent goal. off that? Pardon? Can, I, can we talk a little bit about friendship and stuff? It doesn't have to be too long, um, but... Um, as I've been like, yeah, go ahead. Friendship is the whole Dhamma. 100% of the preachings of the Buddha, and this is coming right out of the Buddha's mouth, is in a sutta called the Half Sutta, where Ananda has come from Sariputta, and Sariputta has told Ananda that friendship is half of your practice. Half of the, what you've got to do is to learn to become friendly. And the Vananda comes tracing up to the Buddha and asks that same question. And the Buddha says, oh, no, oh, no. No, friendship is the whole show. 100% of the Dhamma, your entire Dhamma practice, is nothing but learning how to make friends. First on the inside and then on the outside. That's the whole show, the whole possibility. Can you learn to make friends with your mind rather than having your mind full of judgmental thoughts? Can you have nurturing thoughts in your mind? Is it worth talking about the outside while one is doing the inside? Uh, the way that the Buddha always starts it off and that every system goes with it, uh, they, they go with the Let's, let's use a little phrase you probably heard, sila samatipanya. Sila samatipanya means morality first. Samati means to, uh, purification of the mind. So purification of behavior, purification of the mind, and then samati is purification of view. Okay? This is the normal, ordinary path from the beginning. And I call it ordinary. When the Buddha makes it um, noble, he changes it from morality and behavior into seclusion. Okay, so the first item on the list is to get away from it all, to get away from the world. So that we can begin to make friends upon the inside. So we could say that getting away from the world is actually two stages. In fact, I gave the analogy, imagine that your job is, is to try to change a tire. The tire is flat on the car. And oops, now we recognize we can't get the tire off of the ground to change it because we don't have a jack. Mm 
And then we look at that spare tire. Maybe I can change the tire anyway, even though. And then I look, and now I don't even have a lug wrench. How am I going to change the tire without a jack and without a lug wrench? Okay, so here's that analogy. The first thing is, is that we need a jack to get that tire off the ground. All right, once we get the tire off the ground, now that we can do uh, use the, um, um, the tire wrench, uh, to, uh, the lug nut wrench, to loosen the lug nuts. we got to put that effort in it, too. So these are the two things. So without the lug wrench and without the jack, it's going to be pretty hard to change that tire. This is the job of meditation. So we've got to get the flat tire off of the ground. You got to get it in seclusion. You got to get it into the air so that you can do something with it. This is the seclusion, and the Buddha uh, is also known to have called this the sila. That to, uh, your sila has to become perfect. Well, guess what? Your sila is perfect when you're in seclusion. And so we practice perfect sila uh, by being in seclusion. We're treating everybody wonderful because we're not there. If I were there, I'd start trashing people. So because I'm not there, I'm doing them a favor. <laughs> My sila is beautiful. It's perfect. I'm not there, so I'm not harming anyone. You can see the, the an irony in that, that sila is not a set of precepts. Sila is not a particular kind of behavior. Sila is uh, avoiding the circumstances completely. So once we get in seclusion, now we recognize, wait a minute, I'm not, I thought I was, but I'm not in seclusion. Why? Because when I went into seclusion, I brought the world with me. There's where the hindrances are. Now the, the world is, uh, comes in in the form of hindrances. So now we actually have to not just jack the tire up to get it off, or jack the car up to get the tire off the ground. We've actually now got to take the lug wrench to take those lugs off, which means to take the tire off of the car. This is the, the wholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. You gotta have those wholesome thoughts. Once we get the tire off of the car, now it can be repaired and now put back into service. So most people think that, oh, well, I'm a meditator, but I'm going to deal with the world correctly I'm going to have friendship and meta and all of that, and all they're doing is just driving the car around on a flat tire. <laughs> no, we got to get the tires pumped up and correct first. We got to get some, get some wholesome air into those tires and get them pumped up. Once we get the tires pumped up, now we can go back into the world. That's the way to look at it. And if we can become completely friendly with all the stuff on the inside, then we can begin to practice being uh, uh, at friends with the things on the outside of the world also. That primarily the reason we're not with friends with the whole world and friends with everybody we meet is because we're not really friends with ourselves on the inside. Mm -hmm. But if we're happy and content and everything is okay on the outside, then we can see what's happening on the inside, then we can see what's happening on the outside without having to, let us say, bring on the troubles of the world again.
this is the this is where friendship actually comes in like charity it starts at home that's the whole idea about it that in fact uh, uh, the practice of metta as a meditation practice predated the buddha and that there are still monks and um, uh, dhamma teachers who will harp on metta as their meditation practice. The Buddha points out that metta cannot be a meditation practice. That, that in fact, metta is the result of good practice, not the cause of it. That, met, that metta practice, metta meditation practice, has got the cause and effect backwards. The horse is before the, uh, the cart before the horse, so to speak, is the way that we do it. Uh, we think that, oh, if I can uh, practice, uh, may all beings be happy, then somehow that will rub off on me and I'll be happy too. But in fact, when we say may all beings be happy, but we're not happy, we don't even mean it. We're just telling a lie. But we can, if it's done correctly, we can talk ourselves into it. Some people will say, well, aren't thoughts of metta wholesome? And the answer to that is, of course they are. Thoughts of metta, thoughts of friendship, are wholesome thoughts. But if I have thoughts of wholesomeness and friendliness and getting the mind straightened out and doing the Anapanasati practice now and getting the mind into a really good state, then I can use that skill out in the world. If I practice metta without purifying the mind, without then when I go back out in the world, I'm just going to deal with the world the way that I've always dealt with it, no matter how many times I've told myself, may all beings be happy. When one of those beings beats on me, I'm not going to be happy, and neither is he. So is it worth pondering how one who is joyous and who has um, said... I don't know, meta um, interacts with the world or is that just like perfect sila? It comes when like you're present and here now. It's actually good to know things in advance, to plan your wisdom wisely. I would go so far as to talk to the students about meta is, is that the real meta is not the meta practice, but the real meta is mudita. You've probably heard of meta, karuna, mudita, upeka. Right. Mm -hmm. What is mudita? Uh, I gotta, I gotta jump, guys. But this has been great. It's been great stuff. All right. We'll see you later. This is nice meeting you. Take care. Wearing on. We'll go ahead and finish this one point, and because it's actually quite a long topic. What we mean by um, mudita is what is called sympathetic joy. The question is, which direction is the joy going? A lot of people think that their mudita means that they get their joy from someone else. But the noble way of looking at mudita is that you've already spent your time through your Anapanasati practice. You've got the joy. Now it's your job to spread it. Don't passively go out looking for the joy that somebody else has. You go out and you give it because you've got it already. This is the way of looking at it, is, is that um, uh, metta, uh, karuna, mudita, upeka is an active practice 
when one has the skills to do it. So what are the, you talked about mudita, what are the four? Could you go over those? Well, metta you've heard, which actually is uh, translated as kindness and sometimes loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Compassion is often translated as, uh, as compassion, but it's not really compassion, and we'll talk about it that later. Uh, in other words, if somebody's having a pity party, most people think that compassion is, well, I'm going to have a pity party with them. Yeah, we've, yeah, yeah. I've heard you okay. touch on that a little bit. Yeah. All right. So real compassion is to invite the person out of their bad state. It's not like jumping off the ship. It's tossing them in like a anchor a rope or whatever, right? Right. Yeah, well, yeah, right. A lifeline or a, a lifeline. A, yeah, a, sure. Yeah. Uh, a life preserver, a buoy with a rope on it, and we can pull them in. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so in that regard, then, Mudita and Karuna are wrapped together. Do I have the skills that it takes to, to give somebody joy and to pull them out of their misery? Mm-hmm. But most people think of compassion as just jump in the misery with them. So those are the skills that I'm curious about. Yeah. The, well... If you get the skill of gladdening the mind, mm-hmm. if you get the skill of wholesome thoughts, one after another, then you'll be developing the skills that you need to develop the skills for the Brahma Viharas. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. First things first. The very first thing is we've got to get the mind wholesome. After that, things get really easy. Yeah, yeah. But most people try to practice um, uh, metta, etc., while they have mind still has hindrances, and therefore they're sloppy. They're not very good at it. They're like hard forcing something tell. they don't have, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Parker, let's finish this off, and uh, we'll talk a bit more about uh, the Brahma Viharas and whatnot next time. But All today, right, sounds good want to keep harping on those two points of you've got to be actively engaged. You've got to Mm -hmm. do something. Um, A a way of talking about it, you've got to have skin in the game. A way of looking at it is um, uh, a video game. There's two ways to play a video game. One is to actually get the mouse and play the game. And the other way is to watch somebody over their shoulder play the game. Mm Who's going to learn that game quicker? The one who's actually playing the game or the one who's just watching it getting played? The one who's playing, yeah. Okay. So this is how we do our meditation. This is an active skin in the game game we're playing. Yep. We gotta take the effort. We gotta yeah. put it in. We gotta put the skin in the game. We gotta I be like able to confront the breath, confront this anxiety, to confront the feelings. To really be there with them, not mm-hmm. confronting them in the sense of slapping them around or feeling bad because of the feelings, but rather to confront them in the sense of this is it. This is what's happening. Let's get involved with this. Let's see if we can manipulate and manage this. If I can manage my breath so that I can breathe in and out deeply, then I can manage the anxiety and let's breathe in and out with that too. So this is the important point to, to make today is skin in the game. Awesome. Yeah. 
And the skin that we have to put out first is let's put the skin in the game. Let's get the game working right. Let's get all the unwholesome broken parts out and get the game working correctly, which means only wholesome thoughts, one after another after another, one wholesome thought after another. And those, these are the two major things that most people in the West are missing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you later. All right. I'll see you later. Okay. I've really enjoyed this. It's been a great talk. I <laughs> enjoyed it as well. All righty. We'll Take see care. you later. Okay. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye.